Shalom friends. Hey everybody. Welcome back to Access. My name is Timothy and I'm glad to be studying the scriptures with you today. Quick question. Where is home for you? I often get asked by Filipinos, um, when was the last time you went home? Now as a child, I was confused at hearing this and I would respond saying like, well, I go home every day after school. <laughs> it took me a while to understand that they were referring to the Philippines, you know, the motherland. And I was confused because, you see, I knew very little of the Philippines. It was never home to me. I'm a first-generation Canadian, uh, the son of immigrants from the Philippines. My home is Canada. I was born in London, spent my childhood in Toronto, and the majority of my youth and adult life have been spent in a suburb just north of Toronto called Richmond Hill. So for me, the space between Toronto to Richmond Hill, well, that's home. And there's a common phrase that says, home is where the heart is. And when I think of home, it's this place where memories are made. From time to time, I would still drive by my old childhood neighborhood and, you know, I'd show my kids where I grew up. And I'd tell them stories when we pass by certain landmarks. This area of land holds a special place in my heart. And if I was ever to just uproot my family and move far away, well, this will always be the land that I call home. Our study today is called A Land Forever. Now, if you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. You could also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. As we continue our study through Genesis, I recommend having a Bible handy to follow along. I also encourage you to take some time with your own Access Church communities or your small groups and review this study together. Now let's get started. A Land Forever. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading from Genesis chapters 13 to 15 from the Complete Jewish Bible. Avram went up from Egypt, he, his wife, and everything he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Avram became wealthy with much cattle, silver, and gold. As he went on his travels from the Negev, he came to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, where he had first built the altar, and there Avram called on the name of Adonai. Lot, who was traveling with Avram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land could not support their living together because their possessions were too great for them to remain together. Moreover, quarreling arose between Avram's and Lot's herdsmen. The Kenani and the Prisi were then living in the land. Avram said to Lot, Please let's not have quarreling between me and you, or between my herdsmen and yours, since we're kinsmen. Isn't the whole land there in front of you? Please separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere, before Adonai destroyed Sodom and Amorah, like the garden of Adonai, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So Lot chose all the plain of the Jordan for himself, and Lot traveled eastward. Thus they separated themselves from each other. Avram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived in the cities of the plain, setting up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, committing great sins against Adonai. Adonai said to Avram, after Lot had moved away from him, Look all around you from where you are, to the north, the south, the east, and the west. All the land you see I will give to you and your descendants, forever, 
and I will make your descendants as numerous as the specks of dust on the earth, so that if a person can count the specks of dust on the earth, then your descendants can be counted. Get up and walk through the length and breadth of the land, because I will give it to you. Avram moved his tent and came to live by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. There he built an altar to Adonai. Chapter 14 when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok king of Elasar, Kedorlamar king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, they made war together against Berak king of Sodom and against Birsha king of Amorah, Shinav king of Adma, Shemever king of Zoyim, and the king of Bela. All the latter kings joined forces in the Sidim Valley, where the Dead Sea is. They had served Kedorlamar twelve years, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlamer and the kings with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtrot Kenarim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Eumim in Shave Kiryatayim, and the Hori at Seir, their mountain, all the way to Eil Paran by the desert. Next they turned back, came to Ein Mishpat, and defeated all the country of the Amalekai, and also the Amori, who lived in Hatzatzon Tamar. Then the kings of Sodom, Amorah, Adma, Tzvoyim, and Bela, came out and arrayed themselves for battle in the Sidim Valley against Kedorlamer king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amraphel king of Adma, and Ariok king of Elasar, four kings against the five. Now the Sidim Valley was full of clay pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Amorah fled, some fell into them, while the rest fled to the hills. The victors took all the possessions of Sodom and Amorah and all their food supply. Then they left. But as they left, they took Lot, Avram's brother's son, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Someone who had escaped came and told Avram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amori brother of Eshkol and brother of Aner, all of them allies of Avram. When Avram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, who had been born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night he and his servants divided his forces against them, then attacked and pursued them all the way to Hova, north of Damasek. He recovered all the goods and brought back his nephew Lot with his goods, together with the women and the other people. After his return from slaughtering Kedorlamer and the kings with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley, also known as the King's Valley. Malkitzedek, king of Shalom, brought out bread and wine. He was Kohen of Elelion, so he blessed him with these words, Blessed be Avram by Elelion, maker of heaven of earth, and blessed be Elelion, who handed your enemies over to you. Avram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Avram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Avram answered the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to Adonai, Elohim, maker of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal thong of anything that is yours, so that you won't be able to say, I made Avram rich. I will take only what my troops have eaten and the share of the spoil belonging to the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Chapter 15 Sometime later, the word of Adonai came to Avram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Avram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. Avram replied, Adonai God, what good will your gifts be to me if I continue childless, and Eliezer from Damasek inherits my possessions? You haven't given me a child, Avram continued, so someone born in my house will be my heir. But the word of Adonai came to him, This man will not be your heir. No, your heir will be a child from your own body. Then he brought him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if you can count them. Your descendants will be that many. He believed in Adonai, and he credited it 
to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am Adonai, who brought you out from ur to give you this land as your possession. He replied, Adonai God, how am I to know what that I will possess it? He answered him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut the animals in two, and placed the pieces opposite of each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avram. Horror and great darkness came over him. Adonai said to Avram, Know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs. They will be slaves and held in oppression there four hundred years. But I will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves. Afterwards, they will leave with many possessions. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here, because only then will the Amory be ripe for punishment. After the sun had set and there was thick darkness, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these animal parts. That day Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I have given this land to your descendants, from the Vadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the territory of the Keni, the Kenizi, the Kadmoni, the Hittai, the Perizi, the Rephaim, the Amori, the Kenani, the Gagashi, and the Yavuzi. We see Genesis chapter 13 begin after the shameful deportation from Egypt, and Avram returns where he had first built that altar in that region between Betel and Ai, and he worships God there. Now we see that he has already amassed much wealth. However, wealth in the ancient world, it wasn't measured by by having land or, or like a big house or anything like that. Wealth was measured by the size of one's herds and possessions of silver, gold, and jewels, all of which Avram and Lot had accrued much of from the time that they had left Ur and traveled through Haran And remember when they went to Egypt and they were able to leave there with a lot from from the Pharaoh there. And now we see him back here in the Betel and Ai region. And with all their acquired wealth, we see the more wealth, the more problems. Now, the herdsmen had some conflict rising up between Avram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, simply because they were trying to make sure that they could feed the livestock. And the land, it just couldn't sustain how much livestock they had from both camps. So to resolve the problem, um, we see Avram singing a different tune from the time that he had entered Egypt. Maybe he had learned some lessons along the way. We see this in the way that he chooses to resolve the conflict by giving Lot the choice of which direction he desired for his own household. And Avram would accept what's left and he'd go the other direction. He wasn't as self-centered this time. Instead, he actually gave up his right of seniority, and leaves the choice to his younger nephew. Now that was mighty big of him, don't you think? Now what do you think Lot ended up choosing? This is where we start to see more of his character coming out, which is very similar to his grandfather Terach. Remember when Terach chose to settle in Haran because it was closer to that river Euphrates, and the land was very rich there? Well, Lot chose to dwell in the agricultural richness of the land near Sodom with all of its luxury and comforts as well. And an excellent yet selfish choice it was, but a disastrous one spiritually, as it would draw him into the wickedness of Sodom. 
Now let's get honest. Put yourself in Lot's situation. If you were in charge of this huge household with all this livestock and herdsmen and, and servants and all of their families, what would you choose? Wouldn't you want to do the same thing that he did? Choose a life of ease and luxury where everything's already rich and you probably don't have to worry too much about where you're going to get your next meal. And having the options of a nearby city for possible entertainment, you know, if ever you get bored. Was it such a bad choice after all? Now take note of the land that he chose. He wanted to settle in the valley of the Jordan, and he, in order to get there, he had to travel east. Remember traveling east? And what significance that has? Moving further and further away from the presence of God? And he pitches his tents as far as Sodom. And we see in verse 13 why it was a bad choice. Because it tells us how the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So while the land may have been ideal, the spiritual temperature certainly was not. So the two households divide the wealth, they go their separate ways. Once again, there's this pattern of dividing and separating and electing. And we see God affirm his covenant with Avram, and this is the electing. God tells him, Lift up your eyes from the place where you are right now and look north and south. Look east and west. As far as your eyes can see, this is the land that I'm giving to you, Uzeracha, to you and to your descendants, Uzeracha, to your seed, whom he declared would be innumerable. Back in these ancient days when any land was deeded to a, a man, the man would typically walk the perimeter of the land that he was going to claim. And he would survey the land before claiming it and the deed is completely passed over to him. Now we see in verse 17 how God uses another one of these man-made traditions in order to make things very clear to Avram what's actually happening here. As we see in verse 17, God tells Avram, get up and walk through the length and the breadth of the land because I will give it to you. God was going to give him the land regardless. Because remember, this was God's covenant, God's forever covenant with Avram. And when God makes one of his forever covenant promises, he never goes back on it. So while this is a sort of command, it's also more of an invitation God's inviting Avram to go and look at all the beautiful places that his future descendants are going to be settling in, to survey the land and appreciate God's goodness towards his future family lines. And as Avram's walking the land, he's claiming that land, securing it for his future family. After all, God did promise this land of Canaan to be for Avram and his descendants a land forever. In chapter 14, it seems that there's almost this big break in Avram's story because all we're reading about are a bunch of kings and their different territories. One king in particular, King Kedorlimer, uh, came from this land of Elam and um, later in scripture it's known as Shistan. Today it's known as Kazakhstan, which is part of southwest Iran. And this was just a few miles from Ur. So King Kedorlimer was from the same land as where Avram and his father Terah were from. 
and he allied with the kings from Shinar, Elisar, and Goyim. I want to take a moment here to pause and introduce a concept called redaction. It's a writing process that's commonly used in scripture that simply means editing. And I actually do this a lot in our studies when I refer to something in history and I essentially edit it by giving some current information to help us better understand or relate to what's being written in the scriptures. Sometimes I may say something like, and this was in modern day Turkey or modern day Iran. Over the centuries, the original scriptures have been edited to the version that we have in our Bibles today. And while this may be bothersome to some people, we really don't need to be too bothered by it because these redactions are generally very minor and shouldn't change the meaning of the message. With that being said, one of King Kedorlaomer's allies was King Tiddo of Goyim, and his territory covered the area that is now Western Turkey and Syria. Now, that Hebrew word Goyim means nations, but it also means Gentiles. But prior to Avram, Goyim was a very generic word that simply meant nations in general, like all nations. But after God had separated Avram and designated him as the first Hebrew, then that word Goyim was meant to mean Gentiles. It meant all other nations, other than the special people of Israel. It's very likely that the last person to redact this chapter of Genesis was simply showing that the original scriptural documents that the kingdom of King Tidal, um, it wasn't written down or named anywhere. So he simply inserted the rather generic word goyim. And it indicates that um, Tidal was indeed just a king of some nation or another. So here we have King Dolomer and all his allied kings. And the thing they have in common is that they all reside in these large substantial territories that make up what we call Mesopotamia. And then we're introduced to five minor kings of Sodom, Amora, Adma, Zvoyim, and Zor, with all their small little armies and limited land. And they had been in a peace treaty with Kedorlaomer for 12 years. And we learn that these minor kings actually join their forces in the Sidim Valley, where the Dead Sea is. So Sidim Valley is no longer there because it's now part of where the Dead Sea is. This is another example of biblical redaction. And they joined forces because after the 12 years of the peace treaty, these five minor kings actually rebel against Kedorlaomer in the 13th year. Now you can imagine that Kedorlaomer was just not happy about this. So in the 14th year, we see him start moving across the land, just kind of sweeping across the Middle East with his allies. And they go on this rampage. We learn that the first group that they end up going to war with consists of the Rephaim, the Zumim, and the Amim. And these three in particular are believed to have been a sort of post-flood Nephilim. Remember, the Nephilim were that race of giants or powerful tyrants that were spoken of before the flood, and they were believed to be the result of fallen angels mating with human females. So these guys were like really strong and powerful, a force to be reckoned with. Yet, Kedorlaomer was able to defeat them and the Horites. 
And he doesn't stop there. He continues on back to Ein Mishpat and he defeats the Amalekai and the Amori. And then he ends up going down to the Sidim Valley, remember? Where the five rebel kings all join their forces together. And unfortunately for them, um, the Sidim Valley was full of these tar pits, okay? These clay tar pits. And um, it's just bubbling in the ground. So when Kedorlamer comes, it sends the kings of Sodom and Amorah running for their lives and their armies end up falling in the tar pits. And then the other kings also flee to the hills. And there are a few fugitive survivors. The victorious alliance ends up sweeping through the Sidim Valley and taking all the spoils of war. They take the food and the possessions of Sodom and Amorah and, of course, slaves. Avram's nephew Lot was among those that were taken as slaves since he lived in Sodom. In verse 13, Avram hears from a fugitive survivor of the war, probably one of those guys that, you know, fled to the hills, uh, that his nephew Lot was captured. So this battle-wise Avram, he's no stranger to military strategy, okay? And he, he ends up training up his private militia of 318 men, Remember, his herdsmen knew how to protect his clan, knew how to protect the livestock. So they were ready to go and fight. They were able-bodied men. And he divides his forces against the marauding alliance of Gedorlamer. And guess what? He's completely successful in defeating them and pursued the enemy over 150 miles all the way north of Damascus. That means that Avram literally ran them off the land that was promised to his descendants forever. So Avram also recovered all the goods that were taken by the alliance. He also brought back his nephew Lot and all of his goods, along with the women and all the other people. In verse 18, we're introduced to this very intriguing character called Melchizedek, the king of Shalem. Now, Melchizedek is not actually his name. Okay, it's a, a title. And there's no biographical or genealogical particulars for this king priest. Um, all that we know is that Melchizedek was the Kohen of El Elyon, the priest of God Most High. And this title, Melchi, meaning king, and Sedek, meaning righteous, when you translate Melchizedek into English, it means, my king is righteous, or the king of righteousness. And it's a name in the sense that it's been this unnamed man's reputation. It's his Shem. In Hebrew, Shem means name or reputation. Now, interesting note here. Some of the ancient scribes said that Melchizedek was actually Shem, the son of Noah. Now, you might be asking, does that mean that he was like the second coming of Shem or like a Shem-like individual or maybe even a descendant of Shem? No. These scribes meant that Melchizedek was the actual, real, literal Shem. And this is entirely possible because Shem, by biblical records and chronologies, was still alive at this time. Of course, Shem was destined to be the line of good that extended from Noah. And if anyone alive at this time was completely loyal to the one God, it would have been Shem. Of course, this isn't verified, but highly likely. Isn't that cool? 
So here we have these two rulers that come out to greet Avram after he had defeated and slaughtered Kedorlamor, the king of Sodom, the ruler of a wicked place, and Melchizedek, the ruler of a righteous place. We see Avram accept a blessing from Melchizedek, who's actually affirming God's hand in Avram's victory. He says, Blessed be Avram by El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who handed your enemies over to you. And then Avram voluntarily offers a tenth of the best that he had acquired from the spoils of war. Some biblical scholars actually cite this event as a basis for um, returning a tithe, the 10%. However, that's not actually what's happening here. The concept of tithing involves giving a tenth of all, of the total. Whereas here, what Avram is actually giving to Melchizedek is a tenth of the best that he had acquired in a way to honor the king-priest Melchizedek. And next, we see the king of Sodom kind of slide in there and try to offer Avram a really good deal. He says, listen, just give me all the people, okay? And then you, you get to take all the goods. <laughs> if Avram took him up on that offer, like if he were to accept any sort of payment from him, then he would be betraying his trust in God whom he's been walking with this whole time. So what are some of the lessons that we could learn here at the end of chapter 14? Accept blessings that come from righteousness. We are blessed to be a blessing. Give more honor to others than to yourselves. Do not accept evil deals from the wicked, no matter how tempting they may be, for that would compromise your integrity and betray your trust in God. By Avram accepting Melchizedek's righteous blessing and rejecting the king of Sodom's evil, wicked deal, he would have built up his Shem, his name, his reputation in the eyes of the servants after what had happened in Egypt. So when we learn these sorts of lessons from Avram's story and apply them in our own lives, then we might just start seeing the restorative and redemptive workings of God in our lives. In chapter 15, it appears that Avram is starting to get a little antsy with God's promises. And Adonai appears to Avram in a vision. And he says, listen, Avram, don't be afraid. All right, I'm your protector and your reward will be great. Just hang on. But Avram boldly replies, come on, God, what good is any of this that you're giving me? You know, I don't have any child of my own. And he's probably thinking, well, I'm old. My wife's old. How are we going to have a kid? So, he had a plan to adopt somebody. Now, according to these ancient documents found near the Tigris River, a childless man could adopt one of his own male servants to be heir of his estate. And that's exactly what Avram is contemplating here when he looks at his servant Eliezer from Damascus. And he's proposing to God, why don't I just give it to this guy? You know, since you haven't given me a child yet. It sounds like Avram is accusing God of not being faithful to his promise. At that, God puts a stop to his way of thinking, and he just says, Listen, Avram, this man will not be your heir. Your heir will be a child from your own body. And to help cast the vision for Avram, God leads him outside. Maybe get some fresh air. And he tells him to look up in the sky at the multitude of stars hanging there. And he reiterates his plan. 
that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. Count them if you can. And there, under the many stars, Avram believed in Adonai, and God credits that to him as righteousness. Well, that takes care of that part of the covenant. And God continues saying, I am the Lord that took you out of the land of Ur to give you this land to possess it. Now, Avram, at this point, he wasn't getting sassy with God. He wasn't accusing God of not making good on his deal. But this was a genuine request for assurance that he would indeed one day possess the land. So God affirms his covenant with Avram in a remarkable ceremony. The sign of ancient covenants often involved the cutting in half of animals so that the pledged parties could lay them out on the ground opposite from each other and walk between them. And this affirms that the same thing should happen to them if they broke the covenant. Now, although the animals that God had instructed Abram to bring to him were clean animals, we need to be clear that this covenant ceremony was not a sacrifice. You see, there, there was no altar there, and there wasn't any burning up of the animals. This was actually more of like God's gift to Avram. In his grace and his mercy, he just wanted to give Avram peace about the whole situation at his request. So we see Yehovah God lowering himself and performing the standard human covenant ritual as a sign to Avram of the validity of his promises of land and blessing and of a son and descendants. It was as if God was raising his right hand and swearing upon himself to be true to his oath. So Avram had done everything that God had commanded him to do. He collected the animals, cut them in half, laid them out. And then we see suddenly in verse 11 that these birds of prey appear and they try to escape with the carcasses of the dead animals. And what we see Avram doing is driving them away. Now it's important that we don't just skim over this section that talks about these birds of prey. In these few words, it's talking about these vultures, you know, scavenger birds, and how they're symbolic of death and evil. And this was Satan's attempt at trying to disrupt or stop the covenant because he knew full well what all this was going to lead to. And we're often warned in the scriptures that when God promises us good things, well, Satan will attack. You know, he'll either try to steal the gift itself or he'll try to take your faith and your trust in God's promises or, or even just take away your shalom. And Satan wants you to have what he has to offer you, not what God has already given you. And as these birds are swooping down, we actually get a picture of what it's like when the devil attacks. Okay, and I believe that today in our modern church culture, um, we've become very passive in our understanding of what it is to trust in God's promises. It's like we take on this attitude that says, well, you know, if God wants his promise to go forward, then you know what? He'll have to do battle with the vulture. But guess what, guys? We are Jehovah God's warriors on earth, and we're going to have to get our hands dirty sometimes and put ourselves at risk. You see, prayer, it doesn't replace action. Prayer prepares us for action. And this picture that we get of Avram driving those birds away would be equivalent to what we see in the New Testament, where it says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4 verse 7. After fighting off these birds of prey, Avram is put into a deep sleep. God actually puts him into this deep sleep, and he meets with him in this vision where God is able to declare something 
but something that is very disturbing to Avram at the same time. A great sense of dread overcame Avram in his sleep. It was this horror and a great darkness, the Bible says. And in Hebrew, the word for great darkness is chasheka, and that comes from the same root word choshek, which simply means darkness. But chosheka, it's a spiritual term, and it means dread or evil, death and blindness. Avram learns that his offspring would face oppression, they were going to be subjugated, and they were going to be treated badly. And all of this was going to happen, not in Canaan, but in a land that was not theirs. These events that were revealed to Avram would occur over the next 400 years from the time that his son Isaac is born to the time that his descendants leave Egypt and start heading toward the Promised Land. In Genesis 15, verse 17, the most important part of this covenant ceremony takes place, where the maker of the covenant passed through the separated animal pieces, as was the custom. But we're told that what actually passed between the animal pieces was a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, smoke and fire, they usually represent the presence of God in the Bible. So God walks between the pieces, signifying his agreement and his promise to keep the terms of that covenant. Avram, however, did not walk between the pieces. See, this was a unilateral covenant, not a two-way deal. God made the promises, and he had obligations, and Avram did not. So everything promised in this covenant was completely up to God to make it happen. In verses 18 through 20, as Jehovah God passes through the separated piles of animal flesh, He's reciting the terms of the covenant, including the calling out of the boundaries of the land he gave to Avram and his descendants for all time. After reading this account in the scriptures, we must be able to see by now how significantly important God's promise of a land forever for the seed of Avraham is. Some of you might be wondering, how is this important or relevant for you personally? Well, friends, I got some news for you. If you are a believer in Jehovah God and in His Son, Messiah Yeshua, then you are grafted into the family of God. You are the seed of Abraham. And all the blessings of God come to you through these promises that we're reading about here in the Scriptures. Amen? Before we close the study today, I'd like to share just three quick lessons that we could learn from this faith-filled patriarch Avram and his relationship with God. The first is trust. Avram trusted in what God told him. He trusted that God would do what he promised. Second, obedience. Avram was elected by God, and God revealed things to him because of his obedience. And the third is worship. Avram's faith in connection with his understanding of God's character always led him to worship God. Trusting God requires some degree of relinquishing our control. Obedience to God requires us to come into agreement with His desires. And worshiping God requires a denying of ourselves and acknowledging His authority and exalting Him above all things. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. It's always a joy to be able to get around God's Word and learn about His plan and His purposes and about His amazing love and His promises. I'm so excited to see where He's going to lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua, 
and the shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen. No matter.